0: Theology podcast. I'm John Heaps speaking to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm here with just Ryan. Hey Ryan Hemmer. How you doing? Hey John, I'm doing okay.
1: It's uh well, it's snowing again in <laughs> Minneapolis. We had gotten rid of all of it, all three feet or whatever we had out there, and we were enjoying the spring weather and life was coming back. We were seeing colors
0: again, John. Ooh. Colors. <laughs> colors. And then it started snowing again. I've I've probably told this anecdote before on the podcast, but I have a, a vivid memory of my junior year of college, living in one of the on-campus apartments. I had a little window in my my bedroom that I shared with another guy uh, that looked out on the alley. And one morning in May, in May, in early May, I pulled up the like cheapo vinyl shade or whatever, and there were four inches of snow on the ground, and I just. The shade back down, and I got right back in bed because it just wasn't it wasn't going to occur that day. <laughs> it was not going to happen, not under these circumstances, not under four inches of snow in May. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Was it's pretty, not great. Pretty bad, in fact. um So uh, we don't have Robin. Robin has a, a new baby, and so her ability to uh, indulge us by recording a podcast has been mitigated. So, hey, Robin, we love you. We miss you. Um, we miss Brian Pajic, too. Brian, Brian's been busy. He's had stuff going on, so he hasn't been able to join us. So it's just going to be the, the John and Ryan show again this week, uh, which is fine. We can, uh, we've got enough hot air. We can fill a podcast. Absolutely. We've got some practice. So we're going to talk about another Lonergan essay. This is one that uh, I actually had not read until very recently. And I, uh, as sometimes we do as academics, I assigned it to my students because I thought, that looks interesting. I'd like to read it. (laughs) I would like to read that. Let me assign (laughs) it to my students. We'll deal with that in April. It'll be fine. Uh, It turned out it was fine uh, because it's a really good essay. And it deals with some stuff we've talked about before. It deals with um, the transition from uh, an ancient and classical notion of culture to a modern notion of culture, which is to say an empirical notion of culture. It deals with the transition in ideals of science from the reduction to the necessary to the modern notion of verifiable possibility, all stuff we've talked about before at some length. But then it makes a really interesting turn to consider the sort of effect of those transitions on the place of God in modern culture, on um, the role of philosophy and theology in modern culture, and on the sort of place and function of religious both living but also religious um religious commitment in a i don't know what you'd call it uh uh discursive sense doctrines and the like so um we're going to get to that in just a, a hot minute um i wanted to ask right so, so this essay was a, a i think a, originally it was a lecture given uh at Fordham in 1968 and then appeared in a, in a book in 69. So where does 68, 69 sort of fit in, in the unfolding of, of Lonergan's corpus, right? Cause we've got this kind of early Thomas stuff and then you've got method and theology in the seventies that people have largely heard of where, where is 68, 69 and all that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, going
1: all the way back to, um, to the 40s you know um Lonergan had finished his dissertation in uh I believe in 1940 but you know there was this thing going on in Europe in 1940 being a subject of fascism to, being a subject of the British crown in Italy that year yeah touchy so as as a canadian uh, after the the british and the italians had decided that they wanted to do war with one another it's going to be a war uh, you know he 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 boarded a ship and left Rome without having defended his dissertation. And I just kind of sat there uh, for, for about five or six years. He went back to Canada and was teaching at a small seminary in Montreal. Um, Ended up defending it by proxy, by his, his colleagues, which is super weird. Um,
0: Do you you think we have any recordings of Father Lonergan speaking French? uh, I'm sure they exist somewhere. I really like to hear that. Uh, anyway, sorry, carrying on.
1: <laughs> but then, you know, he, he started delving deeper into the cognitional issues in, in Aquinas. And then by, uh, by the late 40s and early 50s, he was writing Insight. But shortly after he finished Insight in 1952, he, get, he got shipped back to Rome to start teaching at the Greg. And once he was doing that, I mean, he was just consumed by, by teaching. Um, you know, he was teaching Christology and Trinity and Grace, writing these, these sort of massive Latin textbooks and teaching seminars with, you know, 500, you know, young seminarians in them um, and just didn't really have time to do much of anything else. Um, you know, that was half the reason he, he sort of finished Insight. Uh, shy of what he really wanted to accomplish in it because he knew he just wouldn't have time to do anything once he got to Rome. But, you know, by the, by the early and mid-60s, he, he had gotten quite sick. You know, he had developed some lung cancer and in 1965 came back uh, to North America. to, to uh, He had retired in effect from, from a Gregorian. Um, and so in the second half of the 1960s, you know, he had had a big chunk of his lung removed but he he also wasn't you know spending every waking hour and every stray calorie on teaching So he had a lot more time to to develop ideas and there seems to be a kind of critical mass of a kind of constellation of those ideas in 1965 you know he has what he calls his breakthrough to the notion of functional specialization that eventually became the, the, the structure, the eightfold structure of the functional specialties and method and theology. He also, uh, in a couple of essays in 1965, we see he, he's really kind of broken through to the modern notion of culture. And he kind of spends the next several years working out all the implications of that, that shift, the shift to, um, to method as the kind of control of meaning that theology is going to need if it is to achieve a new integration in this very sort of fraught and fragmented modern world, Uh, and and a really thorough development of the notion of culture. And so throughout um, the book, second, a second collection in which this essay appears, you see those two themes recurring over and over and over again through, uh, from, from really 1964, 65, all the way through the, uh, international Lonergan Congress in 1970. Um, so it's, it really is a kind of chronicle of, of, um, Lonergan thinking in public, uh, for, you know the seven for seven years prior to met the publication of Method and Theology, and so really, I think to understand what happened to get you from insight to method, um, the, these series of essays, somewhat redundantly at times, but but I think very compellingly um, help you trace that journey. Uh, you you can sort of see new insights occurring. Uh, there's a few a few examples in here where you see. These are all lectures originally where you see Lonergan has developed his, his ideas about something in the course of a few days where he he'll, he'll will he'll have given a lecture in one place. And as he's rewriting things to give a lecture at another place, two weeks later, all of a sudden he's, he's had some insights that have allowed him to, to make some real progress on some of the same questions. Mm. So um, you really get to watch the way of discovery unfold here.
0: Yeah, and, well, and and it's it's important to notice too that he's he's not taking up method entirely de novo as a topic. So no, there, of I mean, course not. There's a there's a volume of of his um on early his early reflections on early theological or, or his early reflections on the theological method. I don't even know what the volume's called, something like that. Um, but you know, if you if you get a copy of Grace and Freedom, right? So if if those of you who are listening who are Thomas nerds. It's it's Lonergan's dissertation uh, reformulated to be published in um, theological studies is the is the sort of front half. It's what most people get to when they read Grace and Freedom, right? But the dissertation is included in the volume and it's in the back half, It's Grazie Operans, and um, it gets sort of condensed and almost elided in some ways uh, in the TS articles. But in the dissertation, if you go back and you read that. There's this long, very um, uh, finely tuned consideration of theological method and then how method leads to phases of theological development in Thomas and in the precursors to Thomas. I mean, it's really something you spend a lot of time on it. in sort of typical early Lonergan fashion, it's, it moves too fast and there aren't enough markers to help you understand what's going on. So you really have, it's a bit of a slog, um, but it's a fruitful slog because it's, um, it's really, it's well-wrought. But it's, but it's early, right? So you don't, you don't have thematized these notions of culture. You don't have thematized yet a transition to... Um, what a kind of modern analog for this medieval speculative method would be. I mean, we don't have any of that stuff yet, but it, but it is still a, it's something Largan was thinking about, uh, on his way through his doctoral studies. Um, the first chapter of
1: De Deotrino Trino as well is as a, you know, it's, it predates the essay we're talking about by, you know, six years or so, but, uh, yeah, it's a full, a full treatment of theological
0: method. Uh, but in a, in a scholastic or neo-scholastic mode. Def- yeah, definitely. Yep. Okay, so, um, so this essay, so like I said, so part of the absence of God in modern culture is what it's called. And, um, and the first part is stuff that if you've been listening to these episodes, you'll have heard us talk about a bunch before. Um, the transition from a classical notion of culture where there's just, there really is just one culture and you're either uh, inducted into it or you're a barbarian uh, to the, to an ideal of culture, which is just the meanings and values that make up a way of life for a community. You get a nice distinction here uh, between the social and the cultural, which isn't always worked out. It was worked out when Lonergan is the scale of values, but he doesn't always, in his account of culture distinguish. The sort of um, tex- techniques of uh, ordering between the work of persons uh, and culture as a reflection on the order. Um, so, if you know, so if we're going to have an economy or a polity uh, that arranges people into various roles, uh, in which they sort of do their work, and there's a there's a kind of movement and development of of the material circumstances of the community as a result. Culture then is a, is a superstructure that's going to reflect on, okay, is this the kind of order we want to have? Is this order working? Is this order disenfranchising some people? Is this order um, you know, producing the kinds of things we want? Or is it you know, bending us towards um, lower goods at the expense of higher goods, etc.? So you get that distinction. and That's, um, that's valuable and, and helpful, though. He doesn't, he doesn't do that much with it here, except to, to narrow in on what he's talking about. When he talks about the modern ideal of science and again this is um something that we have talked about somewhat ad nauseum probably on this podcast now where the 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 modern ideal of science is not a reduction a a causal reduction to necessary principles but rather um he says here that uh, causality is something that uh, gets displaced by correlation, uh, probability, etc. cetera. Uh, in fact, I can probably read from a little bit here. So um, the universal and abstract were normative in Aristotelian science, but modern science uses universals as tools in its unrelenting efforts to approximate to concrete process. But later he'll call these ideal types. Where the Aristotelian claimed certitude, the modern scientists disclaim anything more than probability where the Aristotelian wished to know things in their essences and properties, the modern scientist is satisfied with control and results. Finally, the prestige of this new idea of science is unquestioned. Its effectiveness has been palpably demonstrated. Its continuing necessity for the universe—excuse me—for the survival of the Earth's teeming population is beyond doubt. Um, so, part of what's interesting there is—I find in some academic, some, some philosophical, but I find it more among philosophically minded theologians, especially Catholic theologians, there's a tendency to see that move away from reduction to certain first principles, uh, away from essences and properties to correlation, to probability, to control and results as, um, as a kind of fall as having a kind of fall narrative. Right. So that, um, look at this sort of, look at this terrible, uh, diminishment of our estimation of our powers. But in fact, we can have a sort of perspicuity with regard to nature, and so we can grasp what is sort of necessary and certain in nature. And these modern scientists um, have sort of given into some kind of uh, Kantian critique of knowledge um, that diminishes what, you know, what they can know. And Lonergan's conclusion here is really interesting. If, you know, if you've heard that sort of uh, paint by numbers criticism of modern science and modern knowledge, is he goes, and that move to the probable, to the correlated, to control and results, uh, has made science way more successful. Um, we actually know a lot more for having transformed our ideal of knowledge. Um, now, the, the, the critic might come back and say, well, no, in quotes, right? You don't, how can you really say you know unless there's certainty? Um, That would be a different podcast to adjudicate that dispute. But at least it's worth noting that Lonergan sees this transition to this different ideal, which is on its face maybe more quote-unquote skeptical, um, though that's not at all what Lonergan means. Um, That in fact, this is the thing that makes modern science successful. This is what unleashes uh, our ability to really understand our universe uh, and to navigate it. Now, uh, in addition to that, you also have Uh, A similar transition in ideals of science in um, uh, Geisteswissenschaften, in in the human sciences. And Lonergan here spends a little bit of time considering sort of how this looks in German, in the German context versus, and he talks about Diltai um, versus how it ended up working out in a kind of Anglo American context, talking about behaviorism and the like. Um, But the thing he notes about both ideals of science is that uh, they're concerned with that on which there is data, that which is experienced. Um, And so in the natural sciences, we have observation, the various tools of observation. In the Geisteswissenschaften, we have um, a lot of debate about what counts as evidence, but but basically he hones in on phenomenology and hermeneutics, um, right? a a consideration of the givenness of experience and its givenness, and hermeneutics, considering givenness in its mediated, in its meaning mediated uh, modality or aspect or whatever word you want to use. And um, and one of the, well, there's a couple problems we run into. And they all have to do with the quote unquote absence of God in modern culture. Uh, the first problem, and we'll talk about these sort of in sequence, but the first problem has to do with philosophy. The second problem has to do with a fragmentation in theology, and so uh, the salience of method in theology. Um, And then there's a there's a kind of further problem that has to do with uh, what uh, used to be called a giornamento, Um, and then and then a a kind of final issue of the general orientation of modern culture to the future. Um, So we're going to kind of bop through these. bit by bit. Ryan, anything you want to jump in there to add or qualify or, uh, you know, otherwise contribute to? I
1: want to make no contributions. Okay. Well, hey,
0: mission accomplished. Um, so there's this line that Lonergan has where he's talking about um, the, the two ideals of science and, and all this. is But the moment that the scientist, or we could say the sociologist if we want, or the phenomenologist for that matter, um, the moment the scientist ceases to speak of the objects in his field and begins to speak of his science itself, he is subscribing to some account of human cognitional activity, to some view of the relation between activity and its objects, to some opinion on the possible objects to be reached through that relation. Whether he knows it or not, whether he admits it or not, he is talking cognitional theory, epistemology, and metaphysics. Um, and he's got a cute thing after that about Moliere and uh, how um, the modern scientist becomes, uh, like the doctor despite himself, becomes the philosopher despite himself. <laughs> um, which I like. You know, which, which is so prescient, right? For all the, 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 the paroxysms of, of new atheism that we had to deal with at the turn of the 21st century. Right, all of a sudden, you have uh, all these guys with scientific training uh, who have opinions about what it is science is doing and science's place in culture, and so they uh, to the to the unending headache of philosophers and theologians. Right, begin to speak, thinking they're speaking just scientifically in the mode of the of the philosopher, albeit the untrained philosopher. Um, which you know, I'm glad we're mostly over. I'm sure some of you out there are still listening to Sam Harris's podcast, and if so, stop. Um, also, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a Twitter account. Oh yeah, boy, he sure does. I really feel good that I forgot that that was a thing. <laughs> um, watching Norm Macdonald like drop sophisticated dunks on Neil deGrasse Tyson, pretty uh, terrific. How like I'm? I know it was hard for us all to see that Trump was going to become president, but that. <laughs> If in 1996, you had come to America and said that Norm MacDonald was going to be a defender of classical theism in response to the critique of a, a theoretical physicist or astrophysicist or whatever the hell Neil deGrasse Tyson is, who knows?
1: The funny thing about that, though, is that what, what Norm MacDonald's initial response to that stupid tweet uh, you know the 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 occasioning tweet being something to the effect of you know the universe doesn't care about your feelings.
0: It uh, was <laughs> it was a, it was a version know, of McDonald's- my favorite. It was a version of my favorite uh, un- the Onion headline, which is uh, the universe now more uh, indifferent and uncaring than previously thought. Scientists say, yes. And, you know, we
1: had, he had the perfect response to it, which was, well, I'm part of the universe
0: and I care. <laughs> and that seems like data that needs to be explained. You would think. So you'd have to have something like a method of
1: analysis that was, that was developed specifically to
0: deal with data on human meaning. Right. Um, yeah, exactly so. So, so Lonergan's saying like, look. The, this change in ideal of science, both in the, the Geisteswissenschaften and in um, the natural sciences, calls out for some kind of philosophy to serve an integrating function. But uh, philosophy is a stone-cold mess. There's just no agreement among philosophers. And ideals of what philosophy should be doing and accounts of the integration of the natural sciences and the human sciences. And so, on the one hand, there's going to be a kind of de facto exclusion of God from modern culture if what you have are really well-established natural sciences, increasingly well-established human sciences, both of which can't really talk about God. now, the natural sciences is perhaps more obvious, right? Uh, at least if you're, if you're a kind of broadly classical theist, where there's not going to be any data on God because of God's transcendence. Fair enough. Now, the human sciences, people might object more, but, but part of Largan's point about that is that, look, when you turn the human sciences on religion, what you get is religious studies, not theology. You get an account of that on which there is data, which is to say uh, rituals, texts, um, meanings, practices, et cetera, um, you might, and actually I think this is an underdeveloped uh, line for people who are broadly convinced by Lonergan or, or really anybody who wants to take it up, even the sort of quote unquote theological turn in phenomenology, one of the difficulties you're going to have is God isn't really part of the given. Um, and so even if you want to talk about the sort of supersaturation phenomenon or excess in phenomenon, the, the, the very category itself is not really data on God because there, there aren't any. Um, so even if you're doing phenomenology, even if you're doing hermeneutics, which seems so much more open than behaviorism or something, you're still not really doing theology. You're not really, um, you're not really talking about God, at least not in the first order. And, and because of critiques of metaphysics and because of the change in ideal in terms of, Uh, the kinds of logical controls, right? So the, the reduction to necessary principles have fallen by the wayside. You can't even quite so clearly move from your phenomenology of religious experience or your hermeneutics of religious practice and community to a theology, to an account of God and what God has done in history. And, uh, and absent a philosophy which situates both of these kinds of science, the modern, the modern natural sciences and the my, modern uh, Geisteswissenschaften, um, well, the, the, situ- the, the sort of uh, superstructural predominance of those two sets of methods are going to make it so that it's going to seem like, how could you ever talk about God? Where... where, where where in the methods of inquiry is there some arena or some uh, uh, forum in which God and what God has done in history can be addressed? So, um, so that's one problem. The one problem is that the, 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 um, the anemic character of the sort of diffusion of philosophical opinions in modern life is one problem that theology faces in modern culture. Okay, so what else? Now, the issue is not just uh, on the side of the natural and human sciences, or even just on the side of a fragmentary philosophical situation, but there's also a problem on the side of theology. Um, And I'm going to read from the essay a little bit more. And Lonergan moves so fast here with these that, Ryan, I'm going to ask you to help me sort of uh, unpack and describe what he's talking about in reference to some of these things because he he's going to give five headings and they're, and they're so terse as to not be useless, but you have to already know what he's talking about mostly. So here we go. Lonergan says, But if increasing specialization prevents modern science from speaking of God, one would expect it to enable modern theology to speak of God all the more fully and effectively. However, while I hope and labor that this will be so, I have to grant that it is not yet achieved. Contemporary theology, and especially contemporary Catholic theology, are in a feverish ferment. An old theology is being recognized as obsolete. There is a scattering of new theological fragments, but a new integration. And by this, I mean not another integration of the old type, but a new type of integration is not yet plainly in sight. Let me describe the situation briefly under five headings. Okay.
1: Let's let's just stop right there first. Great, because that's that's a that's a lot of moves to make in two sentences or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, the, the the first I think the first point is to deal with that kind of surprising claim that he makes that whilst whilst specialization in scientific inquiry, by which he really means um methodical refinement to specific classes of data yep right that that the maturation of the natural and the human sciences brings with it a discipline about uh the classes of data in which one selects for inquiry and the kinds of questions that one asks of that data and there's control over that and the control isn't um right? A set of decrees, um, but is a, a kind of communal practice that is self-policing and self-reinforcing and, um, subject to review. Right. And so in, in the first instance, you say, um, God is absent from modern culture in, in terms of, um, the sciences because the sciences have matured to the point where they, they, uh, have explicit awareness of what is and is not uh, a relevant data set for their methods. Um, and so God, God is not excluded as a hypothesis because belief in God is primitive or something like that or superstitious, but that from within the canons of empirical science, there's simply nothing you can do with that hypothesis. It doesn't actually answer the questions that you're asking. Um,
0: and and as as I've argued elsewhere, you've already um, you've already presupposed in insofar as you're performing these sciences, you've already presupposed that uh, the answer to that which God would like, God would be the heuristic. Um, yeah. Right. So you're presupposing that these things exist. Right? And if that they, in their existing, they are intelligible. Right. And so. Um, if you've already presupposed that you're not going to ask the question, Hey, do these things exist and are they intelligible? (laughs) No, you like, if you, if those are questions for you, you're not going to start doing science. Right.
1: And, and if, and if, uh, they are questions for you, the methods of natural science are not actually going to be all that helpful in getting an answer. No, you're going to go, Oh, these beg the question. Right. So, so, um, so that's part of it, right? To say um, that's what he means by specialization. Um, but but if, the, if the payoff of that is that um, God no longer served this kind of, like, as you say, heuristic function within the actual practice of science, you would think that that kind of exclusion of God would just sort of keep happening as the, as the sort of dominoes fall in human inquiry from this kind of new consolidation of knowledge in scientific method. But Lonergan makes exactly the opposite claim, right? That that this this exclusion of God, this absence of God from uh, the specializations of modern science ought to or should lead to a kind of net benefit or net gain for theology that theology should be able to do its work um, more adequately um, than it could before, uh, which is a very sort of surprising claim to me. Uh, and I think one that uh, heightens all the more is recognition that that has not happened and is not happening within the sort of what at that time was the sort of modern scene uh, in the late 60s you know 3 years after the end of the council so you know theology is is a, a kind of a mess um but that but it but it's not because of the uh, kind of inexorable pull or inexorable consequences of uh, the shift in the notion of science yeah i mean and look so, so- you know that that it, it rules out the kind of romanticism that would say, well, the problem with theology is that it accepted this shift um, that has, you know, a, a couple of centuries of momentum behind it now by 1968. Uh, and if we could just get back uh, before it or around it, uh, we could recover the, the integral whole. We could have the, the, the sort of Great medieval synthesis again, uh, we could have the unity and hierarchy of knowledge and we wouldn't have to deal with fragmentation. Or we could at least sweep fragmentation under the rug or suppress it by force. Um, but that's, that's really the opposite of the claim being
0: made. Um, no, it's really interesting because, yeah, because Lon- I mean, a- though in a way, Lonergan's making the much more intuitive. Uh, what should be the more intuitive inference, right? That, that inference you just sort of spelled out involves a, a certain kind of like uh, a set of backflips uh, to land on repristination projects. Um, Lonergans is much more straightforward, which is, hey, let's look around at all these other fields of inquiry. Theology is a field of inquiry, right? All these other fields of inquiry are all making these big leaps forward that are giving them this uh, newfound force and power to make cumulative and progressive results. And theology is a part of the cultural milieu in which that's going on. So you'd think there would accrue to theology, even just by osmosis, some added benefit. Uh, And boy, it uh, it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem like that's how it's going. Did you want to unpack anything else from that paragraph or should we move on? No, I
1: I think we can move on. But, you know, just just to kind of reiterate again the kind of, um, the sense in which his approach here. Is kind of unique, yeah, uh, among the partisans of the post-conciliar period.
0: No, it's very unusual.
1: He's not going to be easily, easily sort of situated within a, a particular ideology or interpretation of the council based on uh, what he's saying here.
0: Okay, so his first heading, where he's going to spell out in five headings, the sort of fragmentation of Catholic theology. And the first is that modern science, or the discipline, uh, the discipline of religious studies, has undercut the assumptions and antiquated methods of a theology structured by, and then he makes reference to Melchior Cano's um, on the theological loci. Um, I actually don't know what that is. I sort of know what he's referring to.
1: Yeah, he referred. I mean, he, it's kind of his favorite. Uh, sort of go-to example, uh, where, you know, where he's, he's going to talk going all the way back to the, you know, 17th century, you know, he'll say what, you know, what ha-, as he'll complain in other places, what happened when philosophy and the natural sciences all turned to the concrete, all turned to, um, the, the present and all began looking to the future theology retreated into, a, into dogmatic certainty. And this right. is kind of the, the example he always cites for, for um, Got it. being symptomatic or
0: end, emblematic of that retreat to dogmatic certainty. And he, so he, the, just, he describes it a little bit, right? So, such a theology yeah. was classicist in its assumptions. Truth is eternal. Principles are immutable. Change is accidental. But... Religious studies deal meticulously with endless matters of detail. They find that the expressions of truth and the enunciations of principle are neither eternal nor immutable. They concentrate on the historical process in which these changes occur. They bring to light whole ranges of interesting facts and quite new types of problems. In brief, religious studies have stripped the old theology of its very sources in scripture in patristic writings in medieval and subsequent religious writers. Now what he means there is, not that, that uh, theology no longer has any claim to those sources, but rather those sources can, can no longer be appealed to the way they were in theology manuals, which is essentially what, what you would think of as like proof texting, right? We have our conclusion, we have our syllogism that proves the conclusion, and then where do we get the premises in our, in our syllogism? Well, here are sentences taken out of authoritative texts in scripture, patristic writings, and so forth. That, that's really what he's, what he's talking about there. Um, and how have, they, how have they stripped the old theology of the sources in this way? By subjecting the sources to a fuller and more penetrating scrutiny than had been attempted by earlier methods. Um, and we're f- probably fairly f- familiar with this at this point, if you've been in a, uh, a decently reputable theology program. Um, okay, secondly... And this is one, actually, I don't know quite as much about what what he's on about, because I know it was a hot thing at the moment. But um, there is the new demythologization of scripture. And then he makes this interesting turn, which is to say there was an old demythologization of scripture and it took place at the end of the second century. It consisted in rejecting the Bible's anthropomorphic conception of God. It can be summed up in Clement of Alexandria's statement. Even though it is written, one must not so much think of the father of all as having a shape, as moving, as standing or seated in a, or in a place, as having a right hand or a left, end quote. Um, and so now to this old philosophic critique of biblical statement, there has been added a literary and historical critique that puts radical questions about the composition of the gospels, about the infancy narratives, the miracle stories, the sayings attributed to Jesus, the accounts of his resurrection, the origins of Pauline and, Joh- and Johannine, the um, so he, so he uses demythologization here, but I don't, he doesn't seem to have like explicitly Bolkman in mind.
1: Though I think probably he does.
0: Right. That's but he, same. but he means, but he means something more broad, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of taking, taking, uh, sort of form criticism as shorthand for higher criticism as a whole.
0: hmm Okay. Um, Thirdly, there is the thrust of modern philosophy. Now, this one I know a little more about. Uh, Theologians not only repeat the past, but also speak of people today. The old theology was content for the most part to operate with technical concepts derived from Greek and medieval thought. But the concreteness of modern science has imposed a similar concreteness on much modern philosophy, historicism phenomenology, personalism, existentialism belong to a climate utterly different from that of the per se subject with his necessary principles or processes and his claims to demonstration. Moreover, this movement of philosophy towards concreteness and especially to the concreteness of human living has brought to light a host of notions, approaches, procedures that are proving very fertile and illuminating in theology. Now, this is one I think um, today we've seen uh, an even greater flourishing, right? So that you had, um, you still had the kind of phenomenologists impulse in personalism, in existentialism, even in historicism, to to, to try to um, abstract to universal structures, to um, transcendental ideal types or something. And now the methods of sociology have very much, Replaced or not replaced, have displaced in large part these modern philosophical techniques. So that, um, and, and for my money, very much to the good. But when you go to CTSA um, or or some other you know professional theological society, so much of what you see uh, are considerations not of conceptual topics, but of some conceptual topic as considered in its concreteness in some. Historical, cultural, um, racial, gendered, class-based, um, concreteness, and uh, and so the and that the the sort of significance of the conceptual loci or the conceptual um, apparatus is totally determined by the concreteness um, that that what these. the the value of these concepts is really to be measured by their ability to make sense of the concreteness under consideration. Um, Now I'm with, I'm with Lonergan that this is uh, an advance, but I also share Lonergan's concern that this is one of the sources of fragmentation, right. Of, uh, of disintegration. And you know, when you read the schedule for the CTSA meeting, you get that sense. It's like, you know, how could I, how could I uh, uh, mark a path through the, the various presentations at a meeting of the CTSA or CTS or even a- or, I mean AAR probably especially um, where I could walk away with some sense of the, opi- the sort of opinion of Catholic or otherwise theology today, right? How could I walk away with some kind of synthesis of, okay, so here's sort of what we're thinking in Catholic theology in America right now. I don't know how you would do that, um, and, and and the
1: the disagreement that you're talking there about there is not just a disagreement about um, about answers, right? It's not it's not um, right. It's not Franciscans and Dominicans agreeing on what all the questions are, but disagreeing about what the answers ought to be. It's it's really disagreement about what questions matter in theology. Uh, which ones ought to be pursued, and which ones ought to be um, set aside or left unasked? And so, the the question of disagreement cuts uh, deeper than just um, diverging schools of conclusion, um, but it but it really is about a, a disagreement about the prioritization of
0: questions. And it and and it, as we're going to see all the way through in this essay. Um, Lonergan is going to dodge the temptation at every turn to think, well, then what we need to do is go back behind the things that generated this problem we're facing, right? What we really, he's going to avoid the idea that what we need to do is sort of go back behind the origin of the problem to undo the problem. Rather, what he would like to do is address the problem. And we'll talk in a minute about sort of why that gives his approach a certain kind of future orientation, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. All right, so what was that? That was number three. Um, number four, about which you probably don't need to say too much, is the collapse of Thomism, um, by which he means the, the, the sort of falling into the background of Thomas' thought as sort of one more body of theological opinion among others within contemporary Catholic thought. Um, that, that the, the, the science... Thomas's achievement in the 13th century is just not going to be the perennial science of the church. Um, that it ain't going to happen. Um, and so too then, right? Look, I, I know that we as Lonerganians are sort of annoying um, because we're, we're, we have the, uh, the habits of the true believer, but the reality is, is that if, if Lonergan has this view of Thomism, he has to have the same view of sort of Lonerganianism or something. Right. Uh, and Lonergan was pretty clear with everybody like, look, what I don't want is everybody to climb into my sandbox and just repeat the stuff I said for the next hundred years. Um, the point is to be yourself and, and who you are is someone who is, uh, intelligent and reasonable and responsible and loving. And so go do that in your way. Um, but anyway, the point is, uh, a sort of recovery of Thomism as a kind of permanent achievement that then answers all further questions is gone over. Um, and then this it, one,
1: it is worth, I think, sort of pausing though to to recognize the significance of that statement coming from somebody who spent 12 years of his life doing some of the most sophisticated retrievals of, of Thomism that, that have occurred in the, in the post-Leonine Era,
0: and who, uh, if you go back and you read that stuff, and then move forward through his corpus, reading later works where he's using different sources and speaking in a more hermeneutical and phenomenological idiom, insights he derived from Thomas are still operative. I mean, he's oh, still absolutely he's still thinking out of a, a body of, of Thomist understanding deep into the late '60s, through the '70s, and on to the end of his life. Um, so yeah, so it, yeah, it's not as though Thomism, Thomism is sort of uh, dustbinned, um, but yeah, but very well, much, and and in
1: fact had undergone a renaissance for the previous ninety years, you know, yeah. in the wake of Attorney Patras. I mean, it, 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 Thomism was in a re, was in in many ways um, a more viable position in the late nineteenth and mid twentieth century than it was for any number of centuries prior to that yeah, um, in terms of its, its availability, uh, both materially and formally, and in terms of the intellectual rigor of, of those who had committed themselves to pursuing it. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's not as if he's, he's just sort of casting aspersions at manualism here. I mean, he, no. he, there, there's a real cultural movement within late 19th and mid mid 20th century Catholicism that had this, Leonin Thomism at its as its heart and soul, and so to to make this concession as he does, that this this undeniable enrichment of Catholic culture that had accrued in the last hundred years um, is not going to be the roadmap into the future.
0: Yeah,
1: it's no, not, right. despite all of its its. Um, its its potence and despite its its undeniable worth it it in and of itself is not going to be able to solve the problem um that we we find ourselves increasingly running up against
0: yeah well said all right fifthly there is a notable softening if not weakening of the dogmatic component once so prominent in catholic theology Nor, he says, can this be described as simply the correction of a former exaggeration, the advent of charity, ecumenism, dialogue, in place of less pleasant attitudes. The new philosophies are not capable of grounding objective statements about what really is so. But dogmas purport to be such objective statements. Accordingly, if one is to defend dogmas as meaningful, one has to get beyond historicism, phenomenology, personalism, existentialism. One has to meet head-on the contention. That the only meaningful statements are scientific statements. One has to do so not partially and fragmentarily, but completely and thoroughly. Which is a hell of a paragraph. (laughs) 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 Uh, And and maybe one I'll I'll stick in my pocket to bring up. We're going to have Justice Hunter on the on the podcast in a few weeks, Uh, and he's done a lot of thinking in United Methodist circles about the the place and function of, of. doctrine um and i've i've been in my, in my own fair share of of twitter beefs about uh the whence and whither of catholic dogma lately um but that's i mean that's really a a kind of strong uh for for as much credence and value and worth as he's giving to the development of these modern methods as much as he's really treating um, these advances in the human sciences and in scripture studies as moves forward. Um, he's pretty hard on modern philosophy here. Um, to say that the, the anti-realism of so much phenomenology and historicism and existentialism and hermeneutical philosophy, uh, which hadn't sort of fully blossomed yet in 68, 69, uh, that the anti-realism is going to be a real problem for Catholic theology. Um, because if you let that anti-realism uh, settle in, you, you, can't, you, you can't do dogmas anymore. Uh, and dogmas, in Laudergan's view, are at the core of Catholic faith and so at the core of Catholic theology. Um, he goes on, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading a little bit. So further, he says, it is not only dogmas that are at stake, for it is not only dogmas that lie outside the range of modern science. Not only every statement about God, but also every statement about scientific method, about hermeneutics, about historiography, supposes a reflective procedure quite distinct from the direct procedures sanctioned by the success of modern science. And so he's, he's pushing it even further, right? Which is the problem that Catholic theology faces vis-a-vis doc, uh, dogmas as objective statements of what is true, of what is the case. Um, this problem actually reflects back on all the other sciences. Um, that if you, if you don't have a firm philosophical, and in fact, in the modern period, a firm, critical philosophical account of how it is that objective statements can be grounded, um, you you put at risk, you put on sand, natural sciences, hermeneutics, historiography and the like, um, now, I'm with them on that, <laughs> um, but I think it, people might find it odd uh, to put those kinds of claims all on a, on a continuum together where if you have an incapacity for dogmatic statement, so too then you're going to have um, really fundamental issues in the various other both human and natural sciences. That's a kind of remarkable claim. Okay, and then he concludes, Catholic theology at present is at a critical juncture. If I may express a personal view, I should say that the contemporary task of assimilating the fruits, both of religious studies and of the new philosophies, of handling the problems of demythologization and of the possibility of objective religious statement, imposes on theology the task of recasting its notion of theological method in the most thoroughgoing and profound fashion. So, Ryan. Why is theological method the thing he wants to talk about here then? So, if, if you're going to say that, the, that the,
1: the foundational philosophy, the foundational culture that made possible the integration of Christian theology in the high middle ages is gone. Uh, if perennial philosophy is no longer perennial, uh, and if classical culture is no longer normative, um, and of course those two things are linked, um, then you've lost, in a real way, um, the ligaments that are going to hold theological culture together. That's not because theologians aren't smart. Uh, As Lonergan as once said, um, theologians have brains and they use them. (laughs) So it's it's not it's not a deficit in the theologian as thinking as doing as acting. Um, It's not that they're not sophisticated enough. It's not that they don't um, have access sufficiently to the the patrimony of the tradition. Um, It's that you've lost the means by which all of those varied elements were once bound up together into an integral whole. And so what you're left with in the absence of of that uh, binding agent are fragments. And now they're they're even more fragmentary fragments um, because not only do you not have a perennial philosophy, but you have competing and warring philosophies. And, you know, not only do you not have a single unitary and normative notion of culture, you have the concrete co- uh, sort of coincidence of a multiplicity of cultures, all of which in, are, are in various states of progress or decline, and all of which require distinct uh, patterns of the mediation of religious meaning. And so... You, you have this ca- sort of cascading problem of integration where it, on the one hand, there's more and more and more elements to integrate and a, a more and more pressing need for that integration. And yet the concrete means by which that integration would occur seem entirely lacking. Mm. And so you're, you're faced with that problem and the tendency is to, to do one of two things. It is to uh, either try to recover the, the old ligamentation to, to be that um, re- the recovery of the classical notion of culture or the recovery of a kind of Aristotelian normativity in philosophy and science, or it's to just kind of uh, commit oneself fully
0: to the fragmentation. So Lonergan's to, got a line uh, later in the essay here, he says. In brief, so far were churchmen from acknowledging the distinctive character of modern culture that they regarded it as an aberration that had to be resisted and overcome. When they were confronted with a heresy, which they, had considered, which they considered to be the sum and substance of all heresy, they named it modernism. <laughs> right. And then so. he goes on, and then he goes on. Today, the p- pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme. Whatever is old is out, whatever is new is in. But a mere swing of the pendulum, while it involves plenty of novelty, Falls far, sh- falls far short of a giornamento. For a giornamento is not some simple-minded rejection of all that is old and some breezy acceptance of everything new. Rather, it is a disengagement from a culture that it no longer exists and an involvement in a distinct culture that has replaced it. So there,
1: so there you can, up until the last sentence, you can read Lonergan as a grumpy conservative partisan. right that that well actually what the council really meant was x and not y but what that last sentence does is actually explain to you how he under uh, how he understands the meaning of vatican ii and specifically how he understands the meaning of vatican ii as a pastoral council Mm -hmm. that it's it's organizing problem is not fundamentally one of doctrine but one of pastoral
0: responsibility to the modern world. Let me keep reading then. Christians have been depicted as utter, utterly otherworldly, as idly standing about waiting, awaiting the second coming of Christ without any interest or concern or commitment for the things of this life of ours on earth. But the fact of the matter is that the ancient church set about transforming Greek and Roman culture, that the medieval church was a principal agent in the formation of medieval culture that the Renaissance church was scandalously involved in Renaissance culture. That's a great line. And so if the modern church has stood aloof from the modern world, the fact is not too hard to explain. On the one hand, the church's involvement in classicist culture was an involvement in a very limited view that totally underestimated the possibilities of cultural change and so precluded advertence to the need for adaptation and zeal to affect it. On the other hand, modern culture with its many excellences and its unprecedented achievements, nonetheless, is not just a realm of sweetness and light. The suffering, the sins, the crimes, the destructive power, the sustained blindness of the 20th century have disenchanted us with progress and made us suspicious of development and advance. Ajournamento is not desertion of the past, but only a discerning and discriminating disengagement from its limitations. Ajournamento is not just acceptance of the present, it is acknowledgement of its evils as well as of its good and his acknowledgement alone is not enough it, it it also is by the power of the cross that meeting of evil with good which transforms evil into good
1: so so this is this is lonergan at at his most ignation right it's it's theology as discernment um as as consolations and desolations right but mm-hmm. But he's going to insist that the the way you do this consistently, the way you do this progressively, and the way that you do it uh, communally, you have to have a, a real instrument. You have to have a tool. You have to have an organon by which um, to accomplish this weighty and massive work. And he's he's clarified what that can't be right it can't be a retreat to classicism it can't be a retreat to aristotelianism or or Thomism. it has to be something else something more fundamental something that isn't fundamentally about um a particular doctrine or stance or school um but a but a way of performance right a a, a, a way of of acting and thinking and, and coordinating acting and thinking, uh, with within um, the world of religious meaning, and that's what method for Lonergan is right. Yeah. That's what method is trying to accomplish is trying to make the performance of theology itself a question for theological reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trying to do so in a way that can that can reach to uh, something like normativity, where that normativity is not enforced either by some integralist uh, authority, uh, and where that normativity is not scoffed at and set aside as as um, impossible and imperialistic and hegemonic, but is uh, ar- arises and flowers. Integrally from the human spirit itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, by clarifying what are those data that theology must concern itself with, and asking questions about theology's own interrogative performance with respect to those data, Lonergan's arguing that you can, through a, a really difficult and complicated process of, of, of reflection, um, you can find the normative structure of theological performance. Mm-hmm. Those tasks that the community of theologians engage in uh, cumulatively uh, and progressively that yield results that actually move you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that where, where you aren't just um, reciting doctrines over and over again. Um, you aren't just um, advancing one partisan take over another. But you're really trying to get at um, the fundamental underlying activities that, when coordinated together, actually move you forward uh, instead of just treading water in the present or retreating ever further into the past. Yeah.
0: Um, Lonergan's got a a nice little piece about the sort of the why the response has to be a method. why it has to be open um, and not open with the sort of th- thinness of mere proceduralism, but open uh, to dealing concretely with the data. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'm going I'm to read somewhat at length from the last couple pages. Ideals and principles and exhortations have not been antiquated, but the crying need is for the competent person on the spot free to deal with real issues as they arise and develop. Modern culture is the culture that knows about itself and other cultures. It is aware that they are man-made. It is aware that the cultural may sustain or destroy or refashion the social. So it is the modern man, not only individually, so excuse me, it is that the modern person, the modern man, not, uh, not only individually is responsible for the life he leads, but also collectively is responsible for the world in which he leads. So modern culture is a culture on the move. The future will belong to those who think about it, who grasp real possibilities, who project a coherent sequence of cumulative realizations, who speak to humanity's longing for achievement more wisely than the liberal apostles of automatic progress and more humanly than the liquidating Marxists. It is true that concern for the future will work itself out by human means, by drawing on human experience, human intelligence, human judgment, human decision, But again, this is quite compatible with a profoundly religious attitude. What is false is that the human concern for the future can generate a better future on the basis of individual and group egoism. For to know what is truly good and to affect it calls for a self-transcendence that seeks to benefit not self at the cost of the group, not the group at the cost of mankind, not present mankind at the cost of mankind's future, something we think about pretty seriously today with climate change issues and the like. Concern for the future if it is not just high-sounding hypocrisy, supposes rare moral attainment. It calls for what Christians name heroic charity. In the measure that Christians practice and radiate heroic charity, they need not fear they will be superfluous, either in the task of discerning man's true good in this life or in the task of bringing it about. Um, so, you know, one of, I, yeah, I read uh, a long time ago an interview with Stanley Harawas that somebody did and He talked about how he, he really liked insight, but his he was really concerned about method and theology. That uh, there wasn't very much Jesus in it, um, which is a typically Howarth thing to say. Um, but but part of part of what's I think sometimes difficult to see in Lonergan is um, the sort of exigencies he's laying out, the the demands of the task he's sketching are ones that um, though they can be framed in a religious terms as a matter of analysis, as a matter of living, demand devotion to the crucified Christ uh, and uh, a a sensitivity to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like uh, if you don't, if you don't have that, if you don't have the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit and you're not willing to, to work with it, for the sake of the future of humankind, um, it ain't going to work. Uh, you just aren't going to have what it takes. Um, and so, you know, I, I, never, I never quite know what to think of this. I, I as a young evangelical, would we sometimes receive a certain exegesis of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, um, boy, if the moral standards Jesus is putting before you sound impossible, it's because they are. Um, which I don't love as a point of exegesis. But anyway, just as a, as a point of example. Um, and the whole point then is to demonstrate the, the, the need you have for reliance upon God's grace. Now, as, a, as exegesis of the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's not great. Uh, but it's maybe not a bad analog for what I think Lonergan is doing in some of these essays where he's pointing, a, he's pointing out the, the fragmentation And the challenge posed to Catholic theology into the coming centuries, which is, um, we have a huge ship to turn, uh, and we're late in turning it. And and part of the reason that it's important that we turn it is because we're a part of a a culture that's made this huge turn. uh, And, you know, he quotes St. Ignatius here, he says, right? act as though results depend exclusively on you, but await the results as though they depend entirely on God. Um, it, you know, it's, it's time to get to it. And the task is huge. And uh, you know, like the medieval and Renaissance cathedrals, you're going to set stones down that are going to become a church that you won't live to see. Um, and I, sort of, I just don't know what else. <laughs> Sometimes I think, I don't know what else there is to say at this point. Um, you know, what is, what else is there to, to say to Catholic theology, except like, r- you know, raise up your eyes, <laughs> look, look, look at the horizon. It's way the hell out there. Um, and, you know, and, and we do it in a culture that, um, it doesn't really even ask the question of God. And so isn't going to, um, isn't going to re- isn't going to of itself reward us for our devotion to the task of theology. Um, and in fact, it's going to tell us that, we're, um, that the things we're saying aren't even wrong. Uh, and you know, I can say that and it sounds maybe grumpy, but that's not the point. Uh, the point is not to be grumpy about it, but to understand why uh, and to view it as one of many problems to be addressed and to get to work. Um, you know, I, don't, I just don't know what else there is to say beyond that. I don't know, Ryan, do you have anything else to say but, beyond you know, that? It, it turns, <laughs> um, by, by focusing on
1: responsibility the way he does here, it turns what is, when you just lay it out, what seems like a um, a problem that isn't quite human-sized,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's, just, it's just too damn big, and makes it human-sized again. True enough. Yeah. Um, because it it's just really brutally honest about the fact that none of us um, in our, in our singularity and concreteness and relatively short lifespans um, is going to be able to uh, bring about a solution, a solution through the force of singular genius.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: But it's only ever going to be the the work of a community over time. Um, And because it's happening over time, it's going to be difficult to, uh, to see when you're living in it, right? It's only going to be uh, noticeable uh, as an undertow in retrospect, right? Yeah. Um, and so all that leaves any of us to be able to do uh, and responsible for is to show up with whatever gifts we have to give and to give them.
0: Um, as Shaquille O'Neal used to tell uh, rookies, don't come inside the paint with any weak shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that too. That too. All right. Uh, We should probably wrap it up. Um, Thank you, Ryan, for uh, working through this bad boy with me. Once again, this is uh, The Absence of God in Modern Culture from a second collection by Bernard Lonergan. Um, It's worth giving a slow, careful read. It's just a really, really terrific essay. I think that's that's it for us and our show this week. Uh, we are on Twitter at systematic pod. You can send us a email systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can, if you have the means and are inclined and you want to support us with as little as a dollar a month, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash systematically the people who donate now. Thank you so much. You're helping us pay for our SoundCloud subscription and stuff. It's great. And, um, our theme music, as ever, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Ryan, I didn't realize we were so in touch with the Zeitgeist. We've been sampling from Ghost by Nine Inch Nails for these months now, and, and now there's this song that's all over the Twitters. Uh, that Number uses... one song in America, I heard. Is that right? Uh, so... You know, get out there and uh, listen to our podcast and then af- afterwards listen to, what's it called? Oh, old Town Road or something like that? I'm yeah. old shit, aren't I? <laughs> um, I? You kids today with your old town roads. Um, anyway, there's a nine inch nail sample in that. You should go check it out. Where was I in my rundown? I think that's pretty much it, right? I think that's all the things. I think that's all the things. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We sure appreciate it. This week, go out there and uh, be responsible. Adios.